Them vanguards really be tripping, yo. Could we please first do introductions? Because if we don't get them over with, we will and never. And I'm do them. Andy. No, there's no! too much noise. There's I'm too much commando. Noise. You have to wait till everyone's quiet to do your never. introduction. Yeah, okay. Andy, start. These no, 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 no. I need to do. I need to go, go. over. These are absolute fucking chaos. This will be hell, commando. What I'm gonna do is we're gonna go through. I will. Can we do end it alphabetically? No, a, don't B, don't make this more complicated C, Andy, than it has to be. Roll, just go, no, just go Andy, roll, then I'll, I'll go in alphabetical order. Hold on. Okay, so you three are fucking muted. That's that's what just happened. You all three are muted while I go over this, because this is chaos. We're gonna go Andy, then we're gonna go Brawl, then I'm going to go, and I'm going to say to and then I'm gonna end my introduction with saying we also have a special guest from the book club, and then we'll introduce Commando. Okay? Okay. Now we're going to take three deep breaths. Okay. I'm going to unmute you one at a time now. Andy, you're unmuted. My name is Broletariat. You fucking... I am Broletarian. I'm Andy. And I'm Fibwick, and today we are joined by a special guest from the book club, Commando, the coolest of the cool. Commando, you want to tell us a little bit about how you found the book club? I'd say starting in about June, I was definitely more of like what you would call neo-lib. But then at the time, my uncle had a friend in the military who was a communist, socialist, whatever you want to call him. And so I chatted with him for a long while until I got super interested in communism, socialism, and I eventually just went to online forums like our communism and eventually some guy on reddit dm'd me about the book club but i also think it's also safe to say that you have a unique the book club has a uh, serves a unique purpose for you so yeah for like for the most part the book club was a real big support system through like the last i don't know four months well the whole time you guys have been a great support system with dealing with like depression issues and spurts of hospital visits you guys have been like absolutely amazing and letting me talk and give feedback and helpful options and so like for that I'm like super thankful for but even on instances where it's not a super down topic you guys are like real good at making any new member feel accepted into the group so like the discussions for the books I've been here for I read through all those so yeah you guys have like helped me develop when it comes to like a theoretical standpoint but if you want to elaborate on how your um, uh, political education and understanding of socialism and things like that advanced with the book club like i know at least for me i've definitely gotten much better with the help of the book club yeah i mean i gotta agree with that i mean i did bet i'm doing better because i mean you read the whole entirety of the first volume of capital plus a few like extra chunks didn't you some or of the extra, I didn't complete it, it. I think. Like I said, I read it, but reading it just means my eyes went over it and like, okay, this word has been read, but like, I'm not going to say I've understood everything in capital. <laughs> Fib, can you tell us what the organic composition of capital is? Do you remember that? I cannot. Honestly, pretty much everything after chapter 15 has kind of gone to me. I think the, the composition of capital, is that... The organic composition The organic... Of capital. Con- I, know, I remember there's two kinds. I don't remember what the other one Three. was called. Is that relating to like the the proportion of like constant capital to variable variable uh, capital? Yep, it's that got is? to do with that. It's got to do with that. So there's okay. there's three kinds. Organic composition is the <laughs> composite of the first two. 
the the first two are the technical composition of capital which has to do with the physical proportion yeah. of the means of production to the laborers so like just how much machinery an individual worker is yeah yeah the other one's the value relation and those things aren't always one-to-one because machinery can devalue as time goes on so the organic composition of capital is your composite of those two things i'm gonna jump into one of the topics on my list now one of the topics I think in uh, what, what what volume of anti-capital was it that we just released with like the with mine and inverse's article and all that? Yeah, it was anti-capital number sixteen. Sixteen. In that uh, volume, you had an article talking that was going over the book club, but there's a specific quote that stuck out to me at the end of it. Ours is not a movement which can be successfully led by specialists. Our leaders have been, can be, and will be again assassinated, jailed, exiled, deported, betrayed, die from simple natural causes, and or turn traitor themselves. If the loss of our leaders is enough to paralyze our movement, then our movement never had a chance to begin with. The dynamic we must foster within our movement is not one of leaders' followers, but one which encourages each and every comrade to develop themselves to the furthest extent they are capable and willing to develop. To that end, it is important for every willing and able-minded comrade to educate themselves so that our collective history and theory is not confined to the brains of a few armchair Marxists, but is present at every student strike, workplace occupation, conversation between co-workers, march against police brutality, and more. That especially stuck out to me, partially because of the nature of, I think, a lot of, I feel like, modern um, leftists. A lot of modern leftism on the internet just seems to be kind of around just celebrating, like, like their favorite leftist celebrity, whether that be Che Guevara or Stalin or Lenin or Trotsky or whoever. And it's just, it's just about how great they were, and it's not any actual, like, theory. But also, you brought up the, uh, the idea of um, a party of specialists versus a party... Versus, versus a mass party, basically. Yeah. I was wondering if you'd like to elaborate a little on that. Sure, sure. I think um, the, the idea behind a party of specialists may historically best be exemplified probably by the Bolshevik party itself, where the original split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, because we'll r- remember that they weren't originally two separate parties, they were both simply the Russian Social Democratic Party. The, the basic split was that the Bolsheviks wanted to have a party of specialists where the only people allowed in the party were people who had very... Uh, like sort of niche underground skills so to say so people who were good at sort of dodging police they could they they knew about like secret routes through forests and things they they knew how to set up underground printing presses and various things like that and the mensheviks were more interested in cultivating a broader based party they were less discriminating in who should be allowed in inside the party and the basic problem with the the specialist party conception is that it's very concentrated and isolated away from the masses it because it's a specialist party it can inherently never be a mass party simply because the masses of the working class for the most part are preoccupied with daily existence having a job putting food on the table paying bills doing just sort of your daily life dramas with family and relationships and so forth not everybody has the time or resources to cultivate the skills necessary to in the modern day develop an online opsec or constantly maintain encrypted online communications to make sure that your online activities are not traced 
back to your personal life, things like that. Because of then the small nature of the size of the party, it can simply be executed out of existence and not have any real impact on the masses, on the broader general working class. Further, even if it is a successful specialist party, it almost falls into the problem of uh, blankism, if you're familiar with that. Is, is anybody horribly familiar with blank why blank I blankism? I have never heard of that. Andy, you surely have, yes. Yes, I, I heard, I've heard it in conjunction um, with Nekayev, and I, I think incorrectly, but I've heard it in 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 the sense of like a very centralized, very insular political community. Yeah, the basic idea behind blankism, blankism, I don't know, is that everybody is pretty much ready for a revolution and someone has to start and so the goal is get a small party together and be the spark and then everybody else will just follow behind you so it's this like wildly adventurous insurrectionary tendency which is just like all you have to do is get enough people together and then just go do stuff on your own and the masses will follow kind of thing and and that's very similar to the specialist thing where they're inherently out of touch with the masses because you can't be in touch with the masses as an underground specialist party if you're highly engaged in super like illegal activities and stuff like that just in order to protect yourself from police exposure and stuff like that you by default cannot have that kind of exposure to the masses so the work that you do winds up appearing as a foreign relation to the working class and they never actually learn to struggle independently on their own through the influence and actions of a specialist party um if you contrast that to what a, what a mass party should be and it's not as though you can simply say oh i'm going to build a mass party instead of a specialist party you know these are things that are organically created you know you don't make a mass party that that emerges out of lots of previous organization from the masses themselves which is why it's a mass party a mass party is something that should be open and penetrable to your average working person it should be a party that does not require any particular expertise or specialty but is open and penetrable to people who want to intersect and leave the movement as like allows them to basically so sometimes you know you you may be in school and it's like okay I'm, I'm overwhelmed I was school right now I can't be in in this party right now but it's a party that will then say okay you're out of school now you can join back in a specialist party is a party that if you're in this party you have mandated party work and you cannot be a member unless you are <laughs> doing x hours of party work a week or something like that <clears throat> and a mass party may have like party dues or whatever but typically they're nominal enough to allow the average person to participate they're not as high as like a union fees would would kind of be so these are kind of just like any u.s communist or socialist party for the most part just like you pay a fee and you're quote-unquote in the party but there's really not much you do for the party so i'm not sure how like the what is it the social dsa maybe democratic socialist yeah that one <laughs> yeah that's the one that kind of got a big swell and the thing with like a mass party is you you can't just decide i'm gonna be a mass party you know that that either you are or you aren't <laughs> you yeah, can decide so... to be a specialist party and that's sort of more where the critique is directed basically is against specialist parties because 
they wind up setting themselves outside of any mass party that could then possibly emerge, and so they would relate to it, maybe not in a hostile way particularly, but they would certainly relate to it as an alien entity, insofar as they could not intersect with the mass party directly for fear of exposing their um, underground activity, basically. And that's not to say that underground activity doesn't play any role or anything like that, it's simply that if you are a specialist party, the implication is that that's the majority of what you're doing. Yeah, and I remember, I forget exactly which week it was, but I remember in some of our wild and or weekly Marx quotes course that we had, one of the weeks there was a lot about kind of the idea of the role of the Communist Party is to take the class conflict that of course is already there, that is like inevitable, and to kind of try and, I want to say guide that, that doesn't feel right. It doesn't, does it? No. <laughs> But I I'm, I can't find a better word for it. But you know do you know where I'm trying to go with this? Kind yeah, of? I got you. Do you remember when we were reading Trotsky's Soviet thing? He said the idea is basically to influence. Guide, guide kind of works too. You know, I mean it's it's a similar idea. The idea if if you have like a mass communist party, like a real one or whatever, you as a member of that party will intersect with working class struggles as and when you encounter them. It's not a matter of trying to manufacture them. It's simply something that is an in fact of life under capitalism. The working class will eventually strike out against capitalism. They just do that all by themselves. That's not sufficient to achieve communism, however. And so the role of the Communist Party in relation to these sporadic class struggles is one, to fight on the terms that the class has given. So if the class is struggling for higher wages, you don't intersect in that strike and say guess what guys we're gonna strike for the immediate seizure of state power because everyone's gonna be like uh no get the fuck out of here like no one's gonna do that you're gonna be seen as like someone who's trying to like you'll, you'll you're an agent provocateur at that point basically like you're trying to get the strike to engage in illegal activities at which point it will be smashed up by the police and the whole movement will be defeated it's like no they're, they're striking for higher wages. You have to engage with the struggle on the terms that the struggle has set for itself. You, you, if you can't learn how to struggle with the working class successfully for its most basic minimal demands, how can you expect to learn how to struggle for much grander demands like state power? You know, like if you can't win higher wages, how would you honestly expect to be able to see state power then, right? So, so first and foremost, you have to engage with the struggle in the terms that the struggle presents itself to you. Uh, this may sound really dumb, no, but on that point, wouldn't that kind of be two different things? Like, higher wages would be more of, like, a legislative branch kind of deal, while seizing state power is more of a not-lawmaking kind of thing. I was going to say, I don't think it's helpful to look at it as, like, a legislative kind of split. It's The wage demand is certainly an economic demand. If you were to extend that to be like a general minimum wage demand, like, you know, the fight for 15 kind of thing, I think mm -hmm. that then takes on more of a political character. But I don't think amongst working class organizations in general, there tends not to be a division between legislative and executive branches generally. The Soviet is a working body, as they say. It is a working parliament. It's not simply legislative or executive. It is it is both at the same time. Oh, that, that makes enough sense. Yeah, yeah. And um so beyond simply engaging with the struggle 
in the terms that it sets for itself. It's a matter of looking beyond that and agitating beyond it, even if action beyond it is not possible. So it's not possible to transform every single strike into a revolutionary seizure of power. I forget the name of the place in Portland, but it's like a burger chain. And, and they were able to strike for a union and they got a union and they were able to get their wages and things like that. But it was a local strike and a local organization at this like one particular restaurant. You can't expect to go from this struggle to seizing state power but you can agitate in the direction of that while still maintaining the engagement yes yes but um the idea being that you help the class succeed in the struggles it has today while preparing it for future struggles because eventually those smaller struggles lead capitalism to have fundamental problems that require it to respond with state power against the working class's minor demands. So the wage demand is just the easiest one to talk about because it's your classical example. Yeah. Higher wages means lower profits, which eventually, if, if you get a profit squeeze scenario where you just push wages ever higher and higher, eventually capitalism is not making profits and that is a existential crisis for capitalism and it will roll out state power to attack workers well before it gets to that point. And so what happens at that point, when it becomes more than just local police breaking a strike, for example, some of the uh, coal mine wars during like the CIO days when, or, or even before that, like the Battle of Blair Mountain, stuff like that, where you get like the, the National Guard and like the military and the army is now called out to try and put down these strikers who are going for higher wages and unions and stuff like that. At that point, the bourgeoisie has escalated the terms of engagement. The class, the working class started the fight by asking for higher wages, but the bourgeoisie chose to make that fight about more than just wages. They chose to say, no, this is about state power now because they've brought in their state power to crush this particular thing. So the Communist Party has to be present at something like that in order to make the working class realize the fact that the terms of the struggle have changed. That while you may have originally been fighting for higher wages, this has now become about state power. And that's something you're going to see while we read our history of the Russian Revolution, where initially the Soviets and things like that came about because the working class and the peasantry was demanding an end to the war. That's what they wanted. That was their demand. It was a political demand, and they were putting the provisional government into power as opposed to the czarist autocracy which was deposed in order to execute that demand uh but the provisional government was not composed of it, it wasn't the soviets basically it was not a working class state apparatus and so the provisional government was fundamentally incapable of meeting that demand of ending the war and so it was up to the bolsheviks communists and so forth to push the demand for all power to the soviets as the only method of securing an end to the war and that was their ability to effectively recognize the fact that the struggle had shifted terrain it was no longer enough to demand the end of war it was you have to do it yourself you have to seize state power to end the war yourself and that would be the case in the example i was giving of higher wages if capitalist state power was called in to crush that sort of union struggle the terms of engagement would have been shifted by the opposing class the bourgeoisie the working class sets the initial terms of the struggle but the bourgeoisie can always escalate because they have state power. The working class is generally incapable of escalating independently. The You kind of depend on the reaction of the bourgeoisie for that. But you're guaranteed a reaction of the bourgeoisie due to the nature of the wage-to-labor wage capital relationship. I have talked a lot now. Someone else say something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I, was, yeah, I was waiting for a moment to hop in. I'm sorry. I think, you're good, you're good. I think 
tying it back to like what started the conversation, which was the the specialist party, the question of a specialist versus a mass, or mm, yeah. sort of the existence of a specialist party. I think what really defines it, and Brol, what I think um, you were describing was the process of articulation and our the role as revolutionaries of being able to efficiently or at least ca- like capably articulate to the class that the conditions of struggle have shifted. What sets a specialist party up for failure really is that it's incapable of doing this in that it's an insular group. It's not something that's integrated into the mass. It's not something that's really in like a social position to relate to or really understand what actual real working class demands are. And so that puts it in a position where it's really like, at least from where I'm standing, really incapable of being able to transform, say, a demand for higher wages into a demand to take up arms. Or it's incapable of, in reaction to bourgeois escalation, escalate the situation itself. Something I found in the weekly Marx quotes, and something I found that I feel like is kind of related that I wanted to bring up, it's uh, in the princi- in the principles of communism, Engels wrote, communists know only too well that all conspiracies are not only useless but even harmful. They know all too well that revolutions are not made intentionally and arbitrarily, but that everywhere and always they have been the necessary consequence of conditions which were wholly independent of the will and direction of individual parties and entire classes, which I feel like because to me, at least from my view of someone like a party specialist, it feels like it's more built for the cons- for conspiracy almost, and not not being a party of of the working class as a whole to advance the conflicts that's already there. That's a necessary consequence of their conditions, but is rather there to kind of conspire using all their secret knowledge that only they have to kind of put in the revolution arbitrarily. Do you know where I'm going? Yeah, no, I get that. I think Brol, I, need, I need to ask that after I say everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brol, a couple a couple days ago when we were looking at that one group, they they had said um, the task of this essay is to go from the proletariat as a theoretical abstraction, as it has been elucidated above, to the proletariat as a real people to be prepared and organized by communists for revolution and the socialist transition to communism, which, as you had rightly said, Brol, has the issue of seeing the class as this empty shell to be imbued with glorious communist ideology and to then be carried by its saviors to revolution. And I think that's a mentality that's, if not unique to the specialist party, at least characteristic of it. I was going to say, I think the very act of setting yourself aside and saying we're going to be a specialist party I really think this this critique probably applies more to a group that would self-identify as like a vanguard party. And the, the very act of conceiving of yourself as a vanguard has to imply that the masses are somewhat passive, at least somewhat, when the conception of a mass party is the opposite, that the masses are the fundamental motor of revolution, basically. And the vanguard party would have to see themselves as somebody precisely in the vanguard leading the way, meaning that the masses would sort of just trail behind whatever the vanguard is doing. And that puts them in the position of trying to escalate the terms of engagement all the time. Like I said, they they would then be the people going to a strike and trying to escalate it all the time. And escalation isn't always appropriate. For the most part, the bourgeoisie does all the escalation for us. I mean, you you always see it. Like, you know, you go on strike for higher wages and, like, people get shot or whatever. And it's like, holy shit, you know, this wasn't a life or death question. This was like we were fighting for a dollar an hour more. Wasn't that, why, an actual, why did, wasn't that like, there was something about that a couple days ago that I saw that they were striking for, like, a literal dollar more. And Yes, that's actually where shot. it was in um, New York City, the Hunts. 
I don't remember what it was, Hunter's something grocery store, maybe? I don't remember. But <laughs> I was reading an article about it that the World Socialist website read that wrote, and I, I think their line was something that, like, these strikers need to form strike committees and link up with other members of the... Oh, crap, they, they mentioned specific, like, logistical industries and things like that. And then these strike committees need to start calling for a general strike to shut down the city and make all non-essential businesses close so that, like, you know, they're escalating this, like, dollar-an-hour demand to this huge political program that, like, the, the strike's just for a dollar an hour, man. You, you can't expect yourself to successfully escalate that when that's not the terms of engagement that the class has set you you can build a political program around a intelligent management of this pandemic situation that we're in but the specific struggle that was going on was a very specific wage demand for a dollar an hour more they knew what they wanted they were telling you what they wanted the task there is not to try and redirect the struggle away from the wage demand and towards a political demand for a more intelligent management of the pandemic but the task there is to organize to win the wage demand like i said if if the World Socialist website can't even manage to win a wage demand, how can they expect to build a political program capable of intelligently managing a pandemic? It's it's just not feasible. What I understood from it was like the role of the Communist Party in like the advancement of the workers and seizure of state power and all that is to support like the current worker demand, but also like not really rely on the bourgeoisie to like take it a step further, but they also need to advance the movement, like not thoroughly advance it, but just like their current demands just go a little bit more than what they want. And eventually you just push all the way. Okay, like this is a real legit question here. So like as a person, like, female male whatever they would date a non-binary person what would that be considered like as a sexuality standpoint um i think that's up for interpretation i know uh, i know pansexuality definitely includes that because I, I believe because i believe pansexual means you're basically not limited by the gender of the individual bisexuality can sometimes include that but um but it's often up to the preference of the bisexual yeah, individual. Yeah, I, I think the like the definitions for pan and bi there's like a heated debate around that now because yeah. bi like as a term came about before like greater understanding of gender. And so like like for me, I re- I don't care what's going on. I can love just about anybody. Like the de- so like the definitions for bi and pan are somewhat fluid and messy and I think there's like like I, I saw something a couple days ago that was like we should not have pan be like just bi but accepting all genders and I was like I, I don't know what's happening. So I'm not going to comment. Um, I don't know. I feel like bisexuality is like not LGBTQ friendly in the sense that it's not inclusive to non-binary individuals unless it's personal interpretation. Like the baseline definition isn't very friendly. I am... I am the worst queer to be able to like try and explain fib <laughs> help. Uh-huh. I, mean, I can give it a shot. Wow. Go for I, it. Okay, so what I was going to say is I think bisexuality, while you'll see a lot of right-wing memes that are like, oh, bisexuality, they call it it's bisexual, means there are only two genders. I don't think that's what it means. It doesn't mean that, I don't think, I don't think the term bisexuality is meant to imply that there are only two genders. And then I, and then I, and I also think, um, assuming that's partially where you were coming from and on, moving on to that, um, I think, like Andy was saying before, how that came about often before we really had a greater understanding of the whole spectrum, the gender spectrum. Um, at the time, I think it's partially, 
it's partially not inclusive of non-binary folk or that these origins aren't because it's a product of its time. Now, I think it's basically bisexual can be, can include non-binary people or, or not be inclusive of non-binary people, basically up to the preference of the individual. As oftentimes where pansexuality comes in, I think pansexuality is often used to denote a specific, a specific inclusion of non-binary people in your own preference. The thing is, pansexuality also has a bit of a dirty history because I think that originally comes from not having any preference for um, sexual activity whatsoever for any species or age or uh, anything, uh, which is obviously very yeah, fucked that's, up. That's yikes on bikes, bro. Yeah. Now, now that's not <laughs> now that's not the current definition of the word. It has evolved since then, but it has that kind of. But I think it's part of where the where the kind of heat. And the debate comes from as well because some people think that it's wrong to identify as pansexual because of that. And some people think it's wrong to identify as bisexual because of the possible um, exclusion of non-binary people in that. But not, but it's not a necessary exclusion of non-binary people. I think it's, I feel like, honestly, yeah, I feel like, I, I feel like there is no, like, ultimate answer. I feel like it's basically just, like, it's up to individual yeah. preference as long as you're respectful. It's like, That's kind of where it all fuck comes it, down. respect people, damn it. Yeah. The vocab is still developing. And because yeah. it's developing, you know, organic as it goes along there's going to be growing pains and fractures and new terminology and old terminology it's we're in a very rapidly evolving period and so we're, we're gonna run into things like funny quirks in in terminology at least like for me i've just dropped all labels i'm just calling myself queer <laughs> i do the same thing it's simple. <laughs> because like I, I i don't i don't really care um yeah, i know for a while i i didn't know the difference between bi and pan and so technically was pan but said i was bi because i liked the flag more so like it's it's all up for interpretation there but i also just basically call myself just queer in general because like i feel like i'm not straight but i don't know maybe i am and i feel like i'm not like like I feel like I'm probably non-binary, but I don't know. Maybe I'm not. I don't know any point. So I feel like the only thing I know is that I'm confused. <laughs> and to me, that's just queer. It's like that, 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 there's that definitely the something definition. going on. I haven't figured out what it is yet, but there's something. <laughs> also, I'm a theater kid, so like, there's, there's my that. my best friend was a theater kid, and so I was engrossed in queer theater culture. Yeah, theater culture. Honestly, like I got into theater at kind of like when I was like a preteen, and so that kind of definitely shaped my like my acceptance because I still basically didn't have any like political input whatsoever. I was just kind of existing and then like the first input I got was like that of like the accepting theater crowd which definitely kind of sh I know shaped me to be the raging queer Marxist that I am. Every time you guys say queer it always like so wherever I, where I live everyone uses queer as like a super derogatory term. Oh. Uh. Yeah, and it's like every that. time you say it, I always go straight to like, oh, you're calling yourself like a, I can't say the word because that's a oh, definitely no, yeah, a derogatory word. Bundle of sticks, I'm assuming. What? The word that's a synonym for bundle of sticks. Yes. That's essentially, those mean the same at our school. Now that's kind of another thing with the, the the thing Andy brought up about how rapidly our language is evolving is that I think that's that is originally where the term came from, but then I think it's been kind of like co-opted by a lot of like the LGBT movement as being like um, a self description and like and like the way the intention you have when using the word kind of defines whether or not it's derogatory. I mean, I do I do find um, like what's considered like a bad word or like a slur very funny sometimes. I remember I, I my friend group used to like um, used to be just filled with like a lot of people who were not from like. North America and one of them called me a yank and the other like two of them were like 
we are so sorry. And I was laughing my ass off because the, the Yankees, like, we call ourselves Yanks. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, they were so apologetic. They were like, we're so they, sorry. They and I was like, what are you? He was a slur against Americans. <laughs> Like, yeah, like we literally Yanks. have a baseball team called the Yankees. Like, <laughs> like, like the Yank is not a bad word. Oh, wait, what? Are, what is going on here? Um, but apparently, like, like just the term Yank is like apparently like a bad word for Americans. It's, it's just everywhere but America. Yeah, in America, we're like mm, we love being the Yanks. We are. We are the Yank. I think maybe it's just because referring to Americans in general just is a derogatory <laughs> thing. So it's like, on the there's, national there's no basis, everyone way. hates us. There's no positive way to refer to Americans. I, I don't, don't call me an American. Call me South Canadian. South exactly. I feel like I'm Northern I feel Mexican. Like, <laughs> I need to just like put an asterisk over the e every time I write American. Like American. American. Got to take please, the America so out of everything. North and South America. Fuck it. North and South. <laughs> On that note, I am gonna bop off. See y'all. I'm Bye. gonna join Andy in leaving. See you, Commando. Adios. Oh shit! How do I leave? I think he probably just closed the tab. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Also, Andy, I think I don't think you joined yet. When I son of a bitch, that's for me to <laughs> make sure to wait for the podcast. <laughs> um, when was the last time you slept, Fib? Uh, this morning at hey, about four a.m. Oh. <laughs> 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 okay, <then. laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh. <laughs>